0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack.
1: So for this evening, our theme, partly because it's appropriate to the ending of the error in this in this building in the holy trailers that we call it. <laughs> and as as Mark has said, we wanna talk about beginnings and endings, birth and death, little things like that. <laughs> <laughs> and we're gonna do a bit of tag team. I'll teach for a bit and then Mark will and then come back to me and we'll see where we go. One of the things that's so important about taking time to sit in meditation or walk in a mindful way, to have some form of practice that brings us back to where we are, um, is that we can get so lost in the speed and the complexity, the rush of our lives and all the things that we have to check off to get done, to get through the day and survival things and other things like that that we lose a sense of connection to ourself and somehow to the beauty and the mystery of life on earth. We just, we get small, if you understand what I mean. Um, and uh, this is a letter that was written to the Sun magazine, one of my favorite journals. Um, some decades ago, this person writes, I started a rigorous six-year academic program in Boston that required me to work during the day, take classes every night, and do homework on the weekends. On my first summer off, I wanted to get far away from my studies and work with my hands and be close to the earth. So I went to live with an Amish family in Pennsylvania. The experience renewed me and I decided to do it again the next summer. That year, A good friend had um, recently died and I drove from Boston to Pennsylvania on a holiday weekend and what was normally a six-hour trip took more than 10 hours and by the time I arrived just before dusk I was full of feelings including anxious and exhausted and maybe tearful. My Amish hosts had delayed their dinner for me. During the meal I tried to act natural but I felt full of nerves and feelings, and my Amish host could clearly tell something was amiss, because at the end of dinner he said, come with me. I followed him to their backyard, which bordered an alfalfa field. Although his faith discouraged smoking, the farmer lit a cigarette. Three of his children gambled about while two others clung to him. The farmer stood without saying a word, looking out over the alfalfa. I did the same. The dark green field was becoming harder to see in the fading light. The sky was peach at the horizon and deep blue higher up. Stars had begun to appear. Then out of the alfalfa rose fireflies, a few at first, but soon there were hundreds. Their pinpricks of light mingled with the stars, heaven and earth meeting in this humble man's backyard. I felt my anxiety leave me. The farmer turned and said, that's for you. <laughs> and it's both touching as you can hear. And it's also a, a reminder somehow of what it means to live in the mystery of things. Um, we all know that old Ojibwe saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And to come and sit in meditation or to sit at home and have a practice. Yes, there's release of stress and, you know, yes, there's an inner regulation and all the great things that modern neuroscience says. But there's something else about letting the heart be tender and the, the senses open and somehow feeling your place on the earth again, and how important that is, and your place in the turning cosmos of birth and death and all that we live with. So this past uh, weekend, yesterday, we had also a, a memorial service for Stephen Levine, um, who was a close friend and meditation teacher and author of many books hospice worker many books who dies and healing into life and death and gradual awakening who i've known for probably 40 years and he published my first book and joseph goldstein's first book with his press he had a press in haight ashbury was part of the founding of the oracle magazine in those days and old hippie days and in fact wavy gravy who was supposed to come yesterday couldn't because he had his own big 80th birthday celebration so he sent a little red nose and haiku and said, Stephen was my oldest friend. We went to elementary school in uh, Albany, New York. I remember him from second grade, it was very sweet. But there we were, and for those of you, at least many of you probably know Stephen and Andrea, who also came, his, his widow, I guess you would say, his partner. Um, And Noah Levine, his son who started the Dharma Punks and Against the Stream spoke and Ram Dass Skyped in. Um, And it was very moving um, because people stood up and talked about how Stephen's presence and his invitation to people was to be compassionate and loving no matter what, and he worked as and Andrea too did with uh, worked at the bedside of a thousand people who died, children who were dying, worked in children 's hospitals he worked with people who'd gone through severe abuse, and he would talk about it he 'd say the work of the Bodhisattva or the being committed to compassion is to go to the most painful places and keep their heart open you know and I read a passage from just one conversation with Stephen, where he wrote, as an example, a woman we worked with who had worked with, um, her mother became very ill. She'd never really gotten along with her mother. Her mother had been judgmental, unkind, and, and actually severely abusive. And when her mother became ill, she was the only one of the sisters who could even go and sit at her bedside because she'd been training in meditation. And she would just sit next to her mother and wish her well not why did you do this or why did not do not do that or total accounts, but just try to let her mother be and feel love for her. Now, her mother had not only been nasty in her lifetime, it wasn't ending just because she was dying. This woman day after day sat there sending loving kindness to her mother. And on the day her mother died, her mother looked at her and said, I hope you roast in hell. She said, I hope you have the worst possible life. Okay, this is really abusive and terrible. And what you're not supposed to hear from your mother, you know, like seriously. But she, obviously, her mother, this doesn't happen by accident. Somebody taught her to do that, and it happened to her too. So she was sitting with compassion for all that her mother had lived through. And her mother died cursing her, and she died with her daughter sitting next to her, looking at her with soft eyes, with an open heart and full of compassion saying, Mom, I hope everything's okay for you. Now for her mom, it was terrible, Stephen goes on, but for her, it was wonderful. She was just another human being who was having a hard time as her mother was dying and she was healing into love. So that gives a little bit of the flavor of Stephen's presence in his teaching. and really what we're practicing for here. Yes, we're practicing to reduce stress and calm and focus and all kinds of beautiful things like that. But more than that, we too are gonna be confronted in our lives with unexpected changes and with difficulty. And as the Buddha said, there is suffering in union and incarnation. Anybody not have that? (laughs) You can have your $8 back, right? (laughs) So there we were, Jayu Tal was singing some chants, kirtan chants and chants of transformation. It also happens that a couple of days ago was um, Vesak, which is in the Theravada Buddhist tradition that our insight, meditation, mindfulness come from. It's the the holiday that celebrates the enlightenment of the Buddha, his birth and his death. And they rolled it all into one, sort of like they made... Remember, there used to be a day for George Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday, and then they made President's Day. This is kind of like that, the Buddhist (laughs) equivalent. Um, And I have... I got sent this little letter um, from the press secretary, (coughs) a statement by... Barack Obama, Michelle and I extend our warmest wishes wishes to Buddhists in the U.S. and around the world in their celebration of Aesok, honoring the birth, enlightenment, and passing of Buddha. During this season, we reflect on the Buddha's universal teachings of peace, service, and recognition of common humanity, shared values that also bind us all as Americans. This occasion gives us an opportunity to commemorate the many contributions of Buddhist to our progress globally and to recommit ourselves to building a bright future for all communities, cultures, and religions. And our family sends the best wishes during this season. Barack and Michelle Obama. So there you go. <laughs> a little greeting from you. But it's wild that it's birth, death, and enlightenment all on the same day. <laughs> but it's true because everything actually happens now. I think you may have noticed that. There's only now. And there's always birth and death. And here we are in this hall. There were two other buildings, those who've been come regularly on this meadow that held some of our offices. And the day came when the offices were moved to the admin building. And this giant kind of truck crushing machine came in, picked them up, squashed them, and then carted them off to, you know, whatever landfill. I mean, this, if we were in some other part of the world, this would be a school for 50 more years, right? And, and all the rodents would be welcome. But, um, but it's kind of wild that it exists for a time, and then it disappears. They were there and then crushed, gone, like they never existed. And I drove back past the house where I'd lived for 30 years in Woodacre and was sold last year, after I'd gotten, after the end of my marriage, um, my ex-wife lived there for some years, and then we sold it. And there's a new family there, starting to have kids, and they repainted. And they, but we built it and developed it and made the gardens and all of that. And I looked and I said, you know, only a few people even remember what happened in there. There were all these momentous things, beautiful things, and visitors, and arguments, and child-rearing and stuff. It's gone. And no one will even remember it when I don't remember it anymore. Maybe my daughter for a little bit, but that's it. And things are like that, they come out of the world, they appear for a time, we get to engage in a way, and then they vanish. And in this room, which has had the Dalai Lama and 600 Tibetans crowded knee to knee, to be with him who came stream from all over the West Coast to be with His Holiness. Or Thich Nhat Hanh, or the San Quentin Gospel Choir singing in here. My, one of my, I mean, lots of baby blessings and amazing number of teachings in this room. My favorite night, I think, was 20 years ago or so, full moon, Halloween. And we had the Gondon Shartsi monks, those guys who do the Whoa, <laughs> chanting, you know. Multivocal chanting. They came and the the abbot put his forehead against mine. I thought, oh God, I'm gonna see light or something. It was very cool. And then we explained it was Halloween. And they said, oh great. And they went back in their van and they pulled out these skeleton costumes. And they said, come out in the meadow and under the full moonlight with the symbols and all the Tibetan chanting, they did this skeleton dance on Halloween for us. Just, you know, why not, right? The phrase from James Joyce is the ineluctable modality of the world of the senses, which is to say, as Mark was saying in the sitting, that the senses of sight and sound and smell and taste and thought and feeling, what makes up our human experience is ever in change, is arising and passing moment to moment. And we rest in the present while these waves of experience play in our senses. Now, this from the Buddha, it seems as though, it seems that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. And so, Really, the big question is, how do you handle change? And I'm not asking it theoretically, how do you, how does one handle change? I'm asking you, you know, and me and Mark and so forth. What do we do with beginnings and ends of things? And how do we, um, how do we handle death? Because that's the weird thing. You can look, you know, the few people around you. And in a few years, one of them won't be here. One of them will have died. Might be you. But it might be one of them, you know. It's really wild. We had somebody die on a retreat in Yucca Valley a few years ago. And there we were all sitting and meditating and talking about death and various, you know, life and birth and so forth. And then that person died, and they weren't there anymore. And it made it much more real. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. But here's here's an interesting question. I'll say just a couple more things, and then let Mark piggyback on this. When the Buddha died, as the myth or the story goes that are handed down, on the Buddha's passing and flowers rained down from the trees and there was kind of a great gathering and celebration of his life and so forth, there were two groups of his disciples. One group that was weeping and grieving because they loved him and they would miss his presence, must have had rather a remarkable presence. And another group that was complaining about that Mm -hmm. former group and saying, didn't they get the teachings that all things are impermanent? This is what the guy had to say. What are they weeping about? This is the way things go. And those were supposed to be the more enlightened ones. I'm not certain myself. Because it's actually very human. It's this human incarnation that requires us to hold both that in some way um, we're part of an ever-changing mystery and to understand that and relax with change. There's a a beautiful Sufi dance that I've done in the Sufi tradition, the English version, where you meet partners and, and move in a circle is, I love it when it comes and I love it when it goes. And you do that over and over as people, I love you when you come and I love you when you go. And you start to feel what it's like to open your heart to both coming and going. So in one way, there's a kind of very deep equanimity or peace to realize that all things arise and they pass away. And that is what it means to have a human incarnation. Nothing is fixed. And can you relax and become the loving awareness that knows this without being so frightened or clinging because if you're able to let go your hearts much more at peace you're you're freer. but the other side is all those you know the spiritual bypass thing where okay things come and go and doesn't matter and my friend, Maladoma Somé, who came here, West African shaman and medicine man said, your streets are full of the ungrieved dead in your culture. We in the Dagara people grieve every person consciously. And you have people who've died in the ICUs, tended by people, but not by their families or people who knew them. You have homeless people dying in the streets, people in old age homes. And, and I can feel it in a culture that doesn't know how to grieve. And so there's something really honorable and beautiful about those who are weeping, because we need our tears as well. And our grief and our tears are also our way of saying, I have cared about this, and this is part of my way of honoring it and letting it go. And to take your seat in the midst of birth and death and joy and sorrow, Ajahn Chah, my teacher said, if you haven't wept deeply, you haven't really meditated yet. That those tears, they're called the tears of the way, Those tears will come to you, as well as a sense of a a kind of timelessness that says, Yes, this is our human lot.
0: (laughs) So, there you have it. (laughs) Thus have I heard. (laughs) So, while you were all meditating, I was busy doing a little bit of calculus. Um, I had the thought. I wonder how many hours of meditation have happened within these four walls. So I did my kind of rough guesstimate of, I know kind of the program and sort of the flow of numbers, and I figured somewhere between eight and 10 million hours of meditation have been put in here by you a lot, and many others like you. That's a lot of hours, that's a lot of practice. And many of you have probably spent, I mean, actually curious, how many people have been coming here since 1990, or thereabouts, in the mm-hmm. 90s? In the 90s. Yeah. Right. How many people have And in the 2000s, early 2000s? The odds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the last five years? Yeah. So we spend a lot of time within these walls. I'm a big nature lover, so for me to be in the low-ceilinged trailer um, in this beautiful land that's just gorgeous and dripping with, uh, with exquisiteness um, at times has been challenging. But I also m- am aware that, you just I was just saying earlier, coming in here, it does feel like this place has arms and it's like you're sitting in here and there's a sense of being held just as the way the Dharma holds us, community holds us, practice holds us, but also a certain place. Um, And as Jack was recalling different things that happened, I've also been reflecting on uh, different memories of first coming here from England in the early 90s to practice, first teaching here around 2000, running, running many, many courses and classes and trainings and day longs and being in long, tedious board meetings and other kinds of meetings. Um, And actually, the memory that stood out was I did the um, first days of meditation and dance where we weaved in silence and stillness and movement, quite wild, passionate movement at times. And I felt, the first time I did that day long, I felt like the whole 2,500-year Theravada tradition kind of croaking and like, no, what is happening to Buddhism in the West? (laughs) It's really going downhill. (laughs) Anyway, we didn't have a sprung floor, but because we have a trailer, it sort of bounced anyway. So it all worked out. So, but as Jack was saying, um, this 25 years or how many years you've been meditating, you know, how many times you've practiced here, whatever's happened in the last 25 years, where is it all gone? Where is it now? You know, I'm aware of the many, many, many hours, probably thousands of hours I've spent in here. And where is it? It's a complete dream, it's fondness, it's memories, it's, it's a sense of place, but it's also gone, that ephemerality of life. And yet it also has some substance to it and it does endure in our hearts and in our memories. So I wanted to read something from John Donahue who talks about how the Celts used to view time and how place touches us, he says. The nature of calendar time is linear. It is made up of durations that have, be, the, be, have the begin and end. The Celtic imagination always sensed that beneath time there was eternal depth. This offers us a completely different way of relating to time. It believes time. It relieves time of the finality of ending. Within some. While something may come to an ending on the surface of time, its presence, meaning, and effect continues to be held into the eternal. This is now, this is how spirit unfolds and deepens. In this sense, eternal time is intimate. It is where the unfolding narrative of individual life is gathered and woven. So although this place will come to dust and ashes, there's also a sense of enduring in some way, in some mysterious uh, presence, quality, felt sense. I know when I come to the meadow, and the trailers have already gone that held many memories from the staff, there's a sense of uh, something still lingers. So as we know, the Buddha spoke much to this teaching. It was like the cornerstone of his teaching was to understand, to live with this felt, intuitive sense of transience, of holding life intimately, and lightly and the poet mary oliver put it beautifully in a poem when she said um in this life there is one thing i have come to learn that leads back to this the fires and the black river of loss whose other side is salvation whose meaning we will never know to live in this world you must be able to do three things to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones as if your own life depended on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. So, unlike the spiritual bypass, oh, things are impermanent. You know, don't, let's not get too too connected and attached. And no, it's a, we we connect intimately, viscerally with life. Because why? Because it's that's what life asks of us: to be here, to be present for the performance. It's beautiful and difficult and perplexing, to hold it against your bones as if your own life depended on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go, that's the hard part. (laughs) That's why we're here, that's why it's practice. Not easy to let go, it's a lot of talk about letting go, just let go of that grief, you know. just let go of that person, just let go of that difficult emotion. Well, good luck, you would if you could. So I thought we could chant um age old buddhist chant. Um we we'll both I'll Jack and chant it in pali and then we'll chant it in english. So you want to. Anicca
1: watasankhara <laughs> ubhato ayadamino upakhitava nirachanti de
0: sukho which means all things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To live in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. That's an interesting punchline. To live in harmony with the fact that things are arising and ceasing brings great happiness. We might think, oh, that's a little depressing. It's all going to go. We're going to lose everything. It is if we want to click to it. But if we can actually flow with that movement, there's relief, there's spaciousness, there's freedom. So we'll chant this a few times. So we'll do call and response the first time, and then we'll we'll chant it together. All All things are impermanent. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. They arise and they pass away. To live in harmony with this truth. To live in harmony. Brings great happiness.
1: happiness. Altogether.
0: All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To live in harmony with this truth Brings great happiness. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away, to live in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. So the Buddha on this semi said, it's better to spend one day contemplating beginnings and endings and spend a whole hundred years living without contemplating that. What does it mean to contemplate beginnings and endings? What is your relationship to the beginnings of things? We generally prefer the beginning, unless we have an anticipatory anxiety about what's going to happen. But it's the endings, the parting, the ceasing, the letting go, the the dissolution that we often find challenging. <coughs> but as one friend, Roger Housden said in his book, I think, um, Ten Poems to Say Goodbye, he said, You have to say hello, we have to say goodbye. To say goodbye, we welcome the new. We can't say hello without saying goodbye. So before we transition to this beautiful, purpose-built, magnificent Dharma Hall that we'll be residing in, hopefully for the next 25 years and many more after that, although many of us won't be around to see that, but anyhow to just explore our relationship to endings like our relationship to this place well what do you notice comes up in relationship to this uh dharma hold, which has a certain sacredness to it because of the intentionality and the dedication and the practice uh, and the insights and the heart openings and the connections and the community that's been developed here right it's, this is a home i feel like having a transplant from england i'm feeling a little homeless wherever i am this is as about as home as it gets for I me mean, in terms of regularity of place trailers trailers <laughs> <laughs> you know somebody has to do it <laughs> So, and, but at the same time, we, we honor what is and we honor what's passing, but not to also get stuck and not to build a shrine to it, as, as Hafiz says. What's that line? He says, what do sad people have in common? It seems they have built a shrine to the past. And often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What's the beginning of happiness to stop being so religious like that? So we're not carrying it around on our back, but we're just acknowledging, bowing, appreciating it, and also letting it go, like breeze through the fingers. Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe, who I don't usually quote in my Dharma talks, once said, Sometimes things fall apart so that better things can fall together. Don't think she was talking about Dharma centers, but... <laughs> Or as T- T- T.S. Eliot put it in rather more stew way, said, the end is where we start from. So in the beginnings, there are endings. When there are endings, there are beginnings. So out of the dissolution of this comes the arising of something else. The dissolution of the roof here, and you notice a very nice rain catchment stru- structure, <laughs> trying to you know, recycle water, and it is truly the beginning of the end of this building, and this no longer could hold out the water. So to take a moment, how are you with beginnings? What arises for you in that possibility, that openness, that space? And how does your heart hold to and tend to the the endings of things, the passing of things? Do we run? Do we flee? Do we pass over? Do we shut down? Do we put a nice spiritual wrapper around it? Senor. Thank you.
1: Slowly, endings, beginnings, job changes, kids go off, illness. You enter the, what is it the, the continent of illness, when it happens, a different world, divorce, aging, um, moving from one place to another. And in a way, to sit in meditation is to step out of the movement of time, as you were saying, Mark. And the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. Is there some way that we can sit in this mystery of our life and find that which is timeless in all of these changes? Then we become that kind of freedom that the Buddha spoke of. Then we really find a place of freedom in ourselves. And it's not so easy. Um, We miss the things that go. We do need to grieve. Another poem from you called The Dog Misses You. The dog goes out to look for you. She circumnavigates the yard. She's been practicing saying, I love you in every language. Aku sampayan, the dog practices saying in Javanese. Te ibusek the dog practices saying in Romanian. The dog digs a hole along the fence. She's so funny when she digs all that dirt flying. The fence could be time. There's surely a different world on the other side of it. Are you over there? In the afternoon, the dog pulls the leash so hard she almost lifts off the ground, but you aren't to be found. Later at night, the dog puts her blocky head upon the kitchen floor and sleeps. One soft and floppy ear pressed to the linoleum, listening. The dog has been practicing saying, I'm lost in every language. Kuv poop, the dog practices saying in Hmong. Mi estes perdita, the dog practices saying in Esperanto. The dog has three wishes. She wishes she knew where to find you. She wishes you would come home with a treat. She wishes you and I were together on the bed and up she would jump. And it's beautiful, and it's so tender, and it's also so mysterious, because the mystery was that that person was here, and then they're not. And that is also the mystery that will happen to all of us. That we can be committed and dedicated, as Mark says, that we can love, that hold this world against our bones, as Mary Oliver says, and then let it go. And it takes both. You have to both remember the value of this human life and use it beautifully. And at the same time, remember something that's more eternal. Or you won't be at ease. You have to remember your Buddha nature and your zip code, basically. And kind of live afoot in each world. And part of what our practice and teaching also offers as you sit with your breath changing and with a million thoughts coming and going, and your emotions of loving and hating, and you know, you have everything in there. You've got the zoo in there, right? Um, there comes a place where you begin to find a respite in awareness itself, in loving awareness, that's not caught by each of these different seductive, judgmental, you know, plots and plans and ideas and so forth, you can choose the ones that are valuable, but somehow you find the spaciousness of loving awareness, which is your home. Karl Fried Durkheim, Zen teacher writes, the person who really being on the way falls upon hard times in the world, will not as a consequence turn to that friend who offers them refuge and comfort and encourages their old self to survive. Rather, they will seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found in them. In this daring lies dignity in the spirit of true awakening. And so there is something about going through loss or letting go or going through hard times that actually calls for you to turn yourself somewhere to that which is not changing, which is timeless or indestructible. (laughs) Now, sitting as Stephen and Andrea has done with, Thousands of people sitting at the bedside of people as I've done. Um, and people come and ask, okay, you're, you're in the spiritual industry, basically. Um, <coughs> what happens when you die? You know, what do you really know? And of course, it is a mystery. And I know I've watched people ask the Dalai Lama, and he smiles. He said, mm, I will be very excited to find out, you know? <laughs> so, and I didn't used to believe in anything when i went to be with my teacher Ajahn Chah, i came from a family of scientists and so forth and i said i don't know about past and future lives and rebirth and all this other stuff do i have to believe that he said no no he said death and birth happen every day every moment and you can learn all the dharma that you need all the teachings of both how we make ourselves lost and unhappy in this world uh, with greed and hatred and fear the the forces that create human suffering. And in every birth and death, you can also find letting go, ease, mindfulness, compassion. You can find the gateway to freedom there, here. So I started not believing in anything. As it's gone along, I've come to more or less the other side, and I pretty much believe in everything now. (laughs) Sitting at the bedside of people who are dying, and that mysterious moment, when they're there as a person and then absolutely silently, like a falling star at night, spirit leaves the body and it's just meet them, it's not them. I mean, how, what is that consciousness? What is that spirit? You know, or sitting with someone who leaves partly and then comes back and says, I was in this realm of light or I was talking to someone say, oh, you know, the materials say that was just delusion, right? Hospice director, friend of mine, had a group of people come to see him. Their father was dying. He was in his 80s, an old Italian guy. And um, they came and they said, we don't know what to do. They were in their 50s. Um, Our father's really close to death, as you know. And his younger brother was killed in a car accident yesterday. And we don't know whether we should tell him and that would disturb his dying process or not tell him and the hospice director said, Well, I don't know. Let's just go and see how he is. So they all walked in the room and stood with him. How are you doing, Dad? Ah, okay. And, you know, pretty far gone. And then he raised his head and he said, Don't you have something to tell me? And they said, What do you mean? He said, My brother who died. And they said, How do you know? He said, Oh, I've been talking to him all night. You know? So there is another possibility i mean i remember sitting and holding my my father's hand and he's saying i'm just going to turn into dirt i'm a scientist i know dirt when i see it right whatever and i said maybe but you might find yourself leaving your body and the spirit going into light or love or having experiences you're not your body he said i'm not i said listen most everybody in the world actually if you look around believes that there's something more than this. So, I don't know, but you're a scientist, so you have to be open-minded, right? And when you die, as the light comes and you leave, you remember, I told you so. But, you know, and then I've done past life regressions with people around the world at different times. I'll play with this stuff. And the remarkable thing is if I have a room of people, it doesn't matter whether I'm in Palestine or... Israel or, you know, Burma or Japan or something, half of them don't believe in this stuff, which is totally fine. But when we do a past life regression, um, you know, the majority of people have some memory if you do it well. Um, And the interesting thing is it has no um, connection with whether they believe or not. You know, somebody who doesn't believe at all and they look and they say, oh, my God, I have sandals on my feet and they're a little muddy and I'm this woman or man you know and it's not queen cleopatra i assure you i was like a you know a farmer in you know the middle east or africa or something like that and then if we progress it forward and what how did you die and then what was the space like after you died people have all these memories of that and the thing is that wherever i do this people have similar experiences to report oh i left my body there was light there was some sense of not being physical but having still consciousness and so forth you can believe what you want it's up to you as i said you'll see remember i told you but the big thing about this is that there is a possibility and it's it's part of what meditation really teaches us is a shift of identity you take your seat with some dignity there's a kind of um, the Buddhist texts begin, "Oh nobly born, they see the nobility and the dignity in every single human being. that's kind of the invitation. Come and be reminded of your your fundamental dignity and nobility, and be reminded of your Buddha nature, of who you really are, which is not this body. it's not your personality, I hope really, I do, you know. <laughs> I mean, you have this weird animal body. Do you think that's who you are? Little wiggly things and, you know, fur in certain places and stuff. Come on. You're inhabited, you know. And all the fantastic suffering and horrible confusion because of racism and tribalism. And we see people as if that's who they are, their color or their shape or something like that. You're a blue person. I don't, you know, I don't like blue people, right? I only like, you know. Purple people or whatever it is. It's crazy. So we identify with our life or the people we love. It's quite natural our tribe, our community and so forth, we identify with our body. You need to take care of it. You need to love it. But it just isn't who you are. You rent it. Avis, right? And then you have to turn it back. Mileage is up. Okay. Time to turn it in. And the, the beautiful thing that starts to happen as you learn the art of meditation is you shift from being identified with the body or the thoughts or the personality to becoming the witness of it, becoming the loving awareness itself, and, or what my teacher called the one who knows. You become, you shift your identity to be that timeless awareness that is who you really are, that got bored into this body and that will leave and say, wow. That was an amazing ride, that incarnation, wasn't it? Wow, how was that? Fantastic. You'll see. Anyway. (laughs) But the beautiful thing as Lavoisier, who was the founder of modern chemistry, and for all of those who remember those chemical equations where you had to, it was an equation, this had to equal that, he said, nothing is lost, all is transformed. He discovered that in the physical world, that when you had carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and sulfur and these things in certain compounds, and you could change those compounds and molecules and chemical reaction, but you still ended up with the carbon and hydrogen and sulfur and and so forth. Nothing is lost. All is transformed. And it turns out from some who have done this a long time, that as they say, death is perfectly safe. Um because you shift your identity from that which you love, the people you care about, this beautiful earth, this gift of incarnation, and you know that who you are is a timeless spirit. And then it allows you to live with greater freedom because that's who you really are. And you see that secret beauty in everybody that you meet. Oh, here we are having a human incarnation experience. Isn't this wild, you know? instead of judging them. Even that woman that you know Stephen talked about sitting beside her abusive mother, saying, well, that was a painful incarnation, wasn't it? And it's an amazing kind of liberating perspective. And then you plant beautiful seeds. You say, I'm here for a little while. What else to do but to plant seeds of love, of tenderness, of something that, of value, of creativity, um, Not that complicated. This is from uh, Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson. To appreciate beauty and find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, a redeemed social condition, to know that even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is enough, this is to have succeeded. And so you get to be here in this passing world You know, and by meditating, by quieting the mind and opening the heart, you actually get to plant beautiful things in your family and community in the world. And as Thoreau said beautifully, he says, I have faith in a seed. I don't believe a plant will spring up where no seed exists, but I have tremendous faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there and I'm prepared to expect wonders. And so you are in this marriage um, that um, Hafez talks about, the marriage of space and time and beauty and eternity in your human life. And I guess the last thing that I'll say is that um, things always wanna start anew when you let go. There's just something fresh that will come. And sometimes it's terrible. And sometimes as Durkheim says, you have to be annihilated in some way and live through that loss, to find something that is indestructible in you. Um, and here I am, 70 years old, almost 71, and I have a girlfriend who's the same age. We've known each other for 40 years. Trudy Goodman um, we met at a retreat in 1974. She came the first retreat I taught on the East Coast with Joseph Goldstein. She came with her good friend John Kavitsin. Ramdas came. A bunch of the early ones. Anyway, a couple of weeks ago, I took her for a ride on the Ferris wheel in Santa Monica Pier. And I whispered at the bottom something to them. So they stopped it at the top for me. And then I asked if she would marry me. And she said, happily, she said, oh, yes, I will. As a matter of fact, I had a few rings. I said, pick one of these. You can <laughs> see what you like, you know, knowing that she had her own taste. I thought that was a good beginning, actually. Right? Um... So things can start anew, you know? Um, And that's true for all of us. There's something that wants to, as long as you're breathing, as long as you're sitting with somebody who's dying, it doesn't matter what's happening. You have the possibility of awakening and opening, as the Buddha said, if it were not possible to live with a free heart, I would not teach you to do so. But just because it is possible for you, um, I offer these teachings. I offer these practices. So it's your birthright. It's your possibility as a human being, as a as spirit that you are, to learn how to live with this kind of wisdom and compassion amidst the changes. Congratulations. Yay. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We're going to go next month to Hawaii, and Ramdas is going to do a little Aww. ceremony for us Aww. and blessings. So it's very sweet. Your coming out, Potty. Yeah, coming out tonight.
0: <laughs> so one of the challenges with teaching with Jack is that... He talks too much. <laughs> There's nothing else to say, really. <laughs> really beautiful. Um, and I really mean that. I don't feel like I have anything else to add. <laughs> and you know, the the reason this trailer is here <laughs> blame this guy. <laughs> and the reason that the community has grown and endured is partly the both Jack's teaching and also the the his training of many teachers and growing a beautiful community, a community that's really with deep roots and, um, and a broad vision, um, both in Dharma, um, but also uh, in terms of really integrating into, into every aspect of, of life and the complexity and the messiness of life. So I guess I can't help thinking about this building and ending and beginning without thinking about Jack and your beautiful work and your wisdom you. and yeah. heart. And
1: it's been a great service. ride. It really been has, been and ride. we'll see where it goes. Yeah. So far, so good. I have a, a little story. Let's see where we are. Yeah, we probably have to end. Yeah. Um, I have a little, we were gonna listen to you, but we just got blabbing <laughs> right, right? Sorry. And I, I, I would like to do this blessing okay, too. You, uh, I'll read. I'll I'll tell my story and then you read your blessing and okay. then we'll go out into the into the uh, spring summer evening. So and I talked about this a couple months ago or more, but it, it feels important to say it again tonight um, in this conversation that we have. Uh, I went to visit Thich Nhat Han, who had been here in San Francisco for six months. He was brought here by the head of Salesforce, who was also a disciple of his Mark Benioff was a very wonderful man and Mark brought not only Thich Nhat Hanh, but a, a whole group of his monks and nuns to stay in the city because Thich Nhat Hanh, who's now 89 had had as most people know had had a major stroke um, and was getting good medical care in France but there were things you could do get in California you know how it is it's California all kinds of alternative and interesting and good things and so Thich Nhat Hanh indicated, even though he couldn't speak much, that he wanted to come here. And he did get good medical treatment. Didn't get better a little bit. He, he, had, he had a wonderful speech therapist. So he now has a few words. He can move one hand but not the other part of his body. But he came back a little bit and he seems to want to hang in here because so many people love him. And they want to come and hold his hand and thank him for transforming their lives. And he wants to be here to really receive that and to to feel the honoring that people need of him. It's a kind of beautiful thing to watch. Um, So um, one of the times we went over to sit, Trudy and I went over early in the morning at 6.30. They had a little zendo or meditation circle in the living room of this place where he and 20 monks and nuns were living. Um... And after it, we were taking tea with some of the senior monks and nuns, not with Thich Han. And um, they said, oh, this week, there's a big retreat down at Deer Park Monastery, which is his place near San Diego. Um, they said, we've got six or 700 people there. And I said, that's lovely for a week. Um, are they there honoring the fact that their teacher is sick and here and they wanna do prayers for him? And she said, "No, that's the usual number that comes regularly there." And I said, "Well, um, do they come, you know, when he's there?" She said, "Oh, even when he was well, he was only there every couple of years for two weeks." And then she went on this night, it was really beautiful. She said, "But it's not that they're there for his teachings. He' said to the community to them, "You are me." Not that I, you have my teachings, but I am in you and you are in me. You are me. So I don't have to be present physically. I don't have to be with you. You are Thich Nhat Hanh. You are, You are carrying and embodying whatever that I have. That is you. And we get to do this as one being somehow together. And I was so touched when she said it. It wasn't like, okay, here, I've given this to you. But it was a deeper level of of interdependence and of his wisdom understanding to say, you are me. And so they gather, you know, and maybe it's whenever two or more are gathered in his name in the, you know, Christian tradition. And there's so many other meanings of sangha and minyan and, you know, holy community and satsang. But this had a very deep meaning and it was beautiful to see. And somehow I feel like even as we talk tonight and as we come and sit together, that it's not this teacher or that, you know, master who's come through, which is a beautiful thing, but it's really reminding us who we really, who we, you, each of us, who we really are.
0: So, Hmm. blessing. Yeah, so um, the intention for the evening was to talk about endings and beginnings. We've mostly talked about endings, which sort of feels appropriate since we are, in a way, putting this beautiful hall to bed, to rest. Um, but I also want to invite in the the spirit of beginnings. And to, I was thinking about, I spent a lot of time outdoors. I was just up north um, in Lake County where they've had tremendous fires the last few years. And um, there's no Better place to understand change and beginnings and endings is being out in nature, and especially, especially uh, being in a devastated forest and seeing the new life that springs up, the seeds that get released, the, the wildflowers that burst through, the, the, the light that's available that was concealed by the canopy. And so it makes life, makes room for a whole plethora of life forms that weren't available before. And um, so I wanted to close with just a, an, a, a leaning forward to as we, as we migrate across the, the creek, um, no, the creek's over there, across the road to the new center. I wanted to say a blessing from John O'Donoghue who uh, writes so beautifully from the Celtic tradition of blessing. And so um, we'll take the goodness of our practice here as we move into our new dwellings in out of the way places of the heart where your thoughts never think to wander, the beginning has been quietly forming waiting until you are ready to emerge for a long time it has watched your desire feeling the emptiness grow inside you noticing how you have willed yourself on still unable to leave what you had outgrown It watched you play with the seduction of safety and the gray promises that sameness whispered, heard the waves of turmoil rise and relent, wondered would you always live like this. Then the delight when your courage kindled and out you stepped onto new ground, your eyes young again with energy and dream, a path of plenitude opening before you. Though your destination is not clear, you can trust the promise of this opening unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning. That is one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure, hold nothing back, learn to find ease in risk. Soon you will be home in a new rhythm for your soul senses the world that awaits you." So these outer beginnings and endings, of course, speak to our own inner path of endings and beginnings. Let's just sit for
1: one minute quietly.